Well, happy birthday, church. You can say it back. Happy birthday. You know, it is Pentecost, and that's the day that we celebrate the birth of the church. That was the day many years ago, 50 days after Jesus had been raised from the dead on that first Easter, that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon those believers who were waiting with anticipation in the city of Jerusalem. And from there, they went into all the world to preach the gospel, baptizing in the name of Jesus Christ. And we are the spiritual descendants of those um, first believers on that first Pentecost. And so it's good to celebrate the birthday of the church and how the Holy Spirit convicts us and leads us and teaches us and, and helps us grow closer to God. Well, this past week also, before I begin the sermon, I want to share with you was our annual conference up at Lakeside, Ohio, and uh, it was filled with clergy and laity from across our West Ohio annual conference. Um, always as a part of that um, time together, um, new um, elders and deacons in the church are ordained, and this year about 21 new pastors were ordained, and about an equal number of um, clergy people retired um, after many years of faithful service. And that is always a highlight. This particular year, we were also electing um, general conference and jurisdictional conference delegates for next year's general and jurisdictional conferences in 2020. And I'm really pleased to say that one of Anderson Hill's very own, Bill Smith, uh, was elected to serve um, as a delegate to jurisdictional conference next year. And because he was one of the first two elected, he will also be a, an alternative delegate for general conference next year. So we'll be surrounding Bill and all of our delegates with prayer in the years to come as they prepare for that important work. Also, one of the highlights of um, this past week's annual conference was a special offering that was taken to help our brothers and sisters in Dayton, Ohio, recover from their um, recent tornadoes. And um, I understand about $30,000 was um, raised for that fund. Um, and if you would like to still give, you can do that by going to Anderson Hill's own website, andersonhills.org, and there's a space where you can make a, a donation um, for that cause. Well, as you know, in recent weeks, we've been diving in deep to the most famous sermon that has ever been preached, Jesus' own Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, Jesus teaches his followers what the kingdom of God looks like and feels like. And I've got to tell you, we've been learning that it looks pretty different than what we see every day in the world around us. And what is asked of us often goes against our natural inclinations. Now, without negating a single one of the Old Testament laws, Jesus builds on them. He fulfills them. He raises the bar on the standards which define kingdom living. And today, our subject is retaliation. We're going to be talking about how we are to respond when someone hurts us or hates us or insults us. Think about it for a moment. How do you usually want to respond? I mean, often we want to hurt someone in return, don't we? We want to return hate for hate. Or do insulting, reciprocating words slip too easily from your tongue? I mean, we've all been there. We've all wanted to do that, right? Myself included. 
I mean, sometimes we take it and we take it, and then someone pushes just that last little button, one too many, and you go off, right? One of my favorite Christmas movies is A Christmas Story. It's well-known. Perhaps you've seen it too. You know that the main character in that story is Ralphie, and that he and all the other neighborhood kids have taken a lot of guff, guff off of the bully of the neighborhood, Scott Farkas. And one day in the middle of winter while walking home from school, Ralphie is hit in the face with a snowball from Farkas. And he goes off on him. He gains the upper hand. He sits on top of him, and he just beats the tar out of Farkas. I love that scene. You probably love that scene too, right? Because it feels good when a bully gets what's coming to them. But let's hear what Jesus teaches us. I'm reading today from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Here, Jesus is referring to passages in the Old Testament. We read one of those passages in our Bible reading plan this past week. It's from Leviticus chapter 24. And it says, anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Now, this principle is coming from the Mosaic law, and it was given by God to Israel to guide the priests in meriting out proper punishment. In Latin, we call this principle lex talionis. And what it means is that the punishment has to be commensurate with the crime. I mean, it's a good legal principle, isn't it? And it's the foundation of our own legal system today. Now, it wasn't meant to allow individuals to take revenge into their own hands. It was meant to guide the courts as they presided over Israel's justice system. In other words, if your neighbor accidentally or even intentionally killed your prize bull, you didn't just immediately go over to his property and kill his pride bull. Instead, you took the matter to the courts. And there, the elders of Israel and the priests would make sure that the punishment your neighbor received fit the crime. The law was meant to prevent the courts from exacting more from the guilty person than what they deserved. Now, Jesus is not saying that this law should be done away with. He's calling for a higher standard than the law, just as he's been doing throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount. The teachings of Jesus in this passage are admittedly challenging and opposed to what we might think of as our human nature. But then we are called to be more like God, aren't we, and not like humans. 
Getting even is a natural response to being wronged. But God calls us to live above our natural responses. And so in this teaching today, Jesus uses four simple examples. None of them are life-threatening. None of them are even criminal acts. The first one, being slapped. In that day, and even in our own day, few things are as insulting as being slapped in the face. And when Jesus says, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, what he's talking about is really twice as insulting because since most people are right-handed, it's a backhanded slap that connects with your opponent's right cheek. And no one likes to be backhanded. Now, a slap doesn't cause much, if any, physical injury, but it's insulting. It's humiliating. And the next example is someone suing for your shirt, making a legal claim. The third example is based on a Roman law that allowed a Roman soldier to make a native of a conquered country carry their pack for one mile. They couldn't make you do it for more, and you couldn't do it for less. Again, this is humiliating. Think about having to be someone's slave for a mile. Also, think about the humiliation of the reminder that your land is not a free land. You are living in an occupied land, occupied by a foreign force. The fourth example is probably really meant to address insulting a poor person who asks you for money. And in each one of these examples, Jesus is suggesting a radically different response than what we might normally want to do. I mean, our normal response to being hurt, humiliated, or insulted is to retaliate. We want to hurt the other person back. There's a sweetness to revenge or retaliation. When someone slaps up, Nothing feels quite so good as to slap that person right back. When someone has hurt us, sometimes we secretly rejoice when they get hurt too. When someone humiliates us, how often do we hope secretly even that they might be humiliated too? But my friends, that is not good for our souls. The desire for retaliation sinks down deep into the depths of our souls and it changes us. It chokes love out of us and it replaces it with hatred and bitterness. We become bitter people who hold grudges against people, secretly wanting them to pay the price for what they've done for us. And sometimes it can get pretty extreme. I heard a story about a man by the name of Dennis Donahue who wrote these words in his will to his two daughters way back on November 23, 1940. He writes, Unto my two daughters, Frances Marie and Denise Victoria, by reason of their unfilial attitude towards a doting father, I leave a sum of one dollar each and a father's curse. May their lives be fraught with misery, unhappiness, and poignant sorrow. May their deaths be soon and of a lingering, malignant, and torturous nature. 
May their souls rest in hell and suffer the torments of the condemned for eternity. Ouch. I mean, where does this guy come off? His daughters were only 18 and 20 years old at the time. How did this dad get to such a dark and evil place? What happened to what should have been a father's love for his children becoming replaced by a desire to see them burn in hell? My friends, retaliation takes a lot of different forms, but at its core, it's a desire to hurt back, to hit back, to say words that cut the other person down, to hurt someone else's reputation through gossip, even to fantasize about bad things happening to them. We don't actually have to cause another person harm. Just wanting to do harm to someone else is a spirit of retaliation. And if someone is living in your head rent-free, I mean, if you often think about something bad happening to another person, you better be careful because retaliation is already knocking at your door. And so how do we do what Jesus commands us to do? How do we practice a lifestyle of non-retaliation? Well, Jesus suggests three values that we need. Humility, giving, and serving. You know, pride plays a big part in our desire for retaliation. Remember how I said that a slap on the face doesn't particularly injure us physically, but boy, does it wound our pride. It was a huge insult in Jesus' day, and it is still an insult in our own day, even though it mostly just injures our pride. Pride, perhaps, is the thing, the most thing that gets um, in, uh, in the way of our living a life with God. The Apostle Paul wrote to the believers in Philippi, and he gave them this warning in Philippians 2, verse 3. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Why do you think Paul was so worried about the impact of pride in the church? I think it was because he knew how dangerous pride can be. In fact, most theologians agree that pride of the seven deadly sins is the deadliest. It's the mother of all the other sins. According to Isaiah chapter 14, it was pride that caused the devil to rebel against God. And it was the devil who used pride to tempt our mother and father in the faith, Adam and Eve, when he said to them, you're not going to die if you eat that apple, because God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you shall be like God. That's pride. Paul says to avoid selfish ambition and vain conceit. Selfish ambition is when we insist on our own way. And vain conceit is doing so because you believe, that you're, you believe yourself to be more important than anyone else around you. Selfish ambition causes us to want to be more prominent. Vain conceit believes that we are more deserving than anyone else. 
Selfish ambition makes others yield to what it says. Vain conceit assumes its thoughts, desires, and happiness matter more than anyone else's. My friends, pride is really easy to get out of control. But pride isn't always bad. Pride is actually mentioned in the Bible 62 different times, and 53 of those times it's used in a negative sense. But several of those times it's used in a good sense, like there's good pride in the Bible when Paul talks about how proud he is of the Corinthian church for their generosity. In that sense, pride means satisfaction over one's achievement. And that kind of pride can be good. I mean, we need to aim high, don't we, so that we can be proud of our performance at work or school or home. Good pride means that we, we, we do things out of self-respect and dignity and class and joy in seeing other people succeed. Bad pride is conceit, egotism, and selfishness. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, he writes, For everything in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So what's the antidote to pride? Well, it's humility, isn't it? And how do we do that? Well, Paul has some more to teach us about that also in Philippians 2. In verse 4, he says, In humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. You see, humility says it doesn't have to be my way because I can see that other people might benefit from your way. Humility says things don't necessarily have to please me because I can see that it's meeting the needs of others. Humility helps us think of others ahead of ourselves. In verse 3, Paul uses the word better in the NRV. He says, regard others as better than yourselves. I think that that translation is a little bit awkward, and it doesn't quite capture what Paul is trying to say. I think Eugene Peterson in the message gets it just a little bit better, where he says, put yourself aside and help others to get ahead. You see, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility says, I'm not going to promote myself. I'm going to promote you. Humility says, I'm going to help you develop your gifts and your talents. I'm going to help you become the leader that God wants you to be. Well, the second way that we deal with retaliation is by choosing to be generous. Jesus says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give them your coat as well. And so, how does generosity help us deal with retaliation? Well, giving helps us break out of the bonds of our own self-interest, doesn't it? It helps us, do, it helps us deal with that oh-so-apt um, uh, um, experience that we have of wanting to be in control, of wanting to dominate. Uh, being generous helps us um, see beyond our own needs and our own self. By nature, we're often very self-centered, but, but being generous takes the onus off of us and it puts our eyes on someone else. What generosity does is it helps us examine 
our motivation. And sometimes we need to do just that, don't we? We need to give ourselves a periodic checkup. We need to look at our motives and our values and our priorities, and we need to ask ourselves, am I just living for myself, or is there someone else that I'm living for, something else, a greater purpose? You see, giving, giving helps us to clarify our priorities and our values it helps us examine our motivations. The Bible says that we give to prevent selfishness, that it helps us to keep our priorities in balance. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. You see, it helps us put our priorities in place. Again, in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he's bragging on the Christians there who had really stepped up to the plate and given beyond generous giving. In chapter 8, verse 5, he says that they did it the right way. He writes this. He says, they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. Did you hear that? First, they gave their lives to God. And then they gave their offering out of a willingness to please God. You see, that's the priority. We give because we need to give. God created us that way. We give because of what it does to us. It keeps us from being selfish. It keeps us from being Scrooges. It keeps us from being self-centered and thinking that we're our own God with a little g and that the whole world revolves around us. Finally, Jesus gives us the instruction to go the extra mile. He's talking about serving here. It's about choosing to serve other people instead of demanding our own way. And Paul has some things to say about that in Philippians chapter 2. He writes these words, In your relationships with others, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul is saying that before Jesus became human, he was God. And in his pre-earthly state, Jesus possessed inwardly and displayed outwardly the very nature of God. That before becoming a human being, Jesus Christ was divine. He possessed the form of God. But, Paul says, that Jesus didn't regard equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He says that Jesus made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant. Not that Jesus exchanged his divinity for a servant, but that he displayed the nature of God by displaying the nature of a servant. That Jesus chose to express his divinity as one who serves. Paul is saying that 
if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. And what Jesus reflects is the life of servanthood. Jesus used his heavenly privileges for the sake of other people. He leaves his throne of glory and he empties himself of his divine prerogatives. He assumes all the limitations inherent in being human. He served the needs of people wherever he went. He never sought religious or political power. He never turned anyone away. I mean, just look at the last week of Jesus' life. He took the role of a servant, taking off his outer garment and washing the stinky, smelly, dirty feet of his disciples as they sat together with their Lord in the upper room on the night that he was to be betrayed. And in that, Jesus gives us an example of a servant attitude. Paul says, let the same mind be in you. You see, you and I are created to reflect the nature and character of God. And this means that we are at our most human when we reflect that character. And we do that when we empty ourselves from demanding our own way and when we take the form of a servant. I know sometimes when I get in an argument and that argument gets heated, I think that if I just respond to the other person by saying something hurtful enough, that they'll realize how wrong they were and apologize to me. But you know what? It has never worked that way, <laughs> and it never will. Hurtful words beget more hurtful words. Relationships can be torn apart by hurt people trying to out-hurt one another. Retaliation begets retaliation. And Jesus says, break this cycle. If another person hurts your pride, well, humble yourself more. If they ask for something, give them more than they expected. Go the extra mile. Find a way to serve them. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourselves, but Pastor Mark, what if it doesn't work? What if they keep on being unkind or keep on trying to humiliate me? It doesn't matter. <laughs> this isn't about something working. It's not a technique to fix other people. It's the way of following Jesus' example and walking in his love that he expects from us. Now, I do want to say a word of caution. I'm not suggesting, and neither is Jesus suggesting, that we be doormats. Don't ever allow someone to abuse you or harm you or someone else. If you are the victim of abuse, that isn't the time to turn the other cheek. That's the time to get help. I'll close by sharing that in June of 2003, the Hatfields and the McCoys finally put an end to their blood feud that had started 125 years earlier in 1878. Sixty descendants of the original clans gathered together to sign a document declaring an official end to more than a century of hatred and bloodshed that started when one of the McCoys 
was accused of stealing a hog. Twelve people were killed over the next ten years, and here's what that document said. We do hereby and formally declare an official end to all hostilities, implied, inferred, and real between the families now and forevermore. We ask by God's grace and love that we be forever remembered as those that bound together the hearts of two families to form a family of freedom in America. Now, my friends, if the Hatfields and McCoys can stop their retaliation, so can we. The gospel is all about this. We were God's enemies, but Jesus now calls us his friends. He loved us even when we rebelled against him. When we refuse to retaliate, when we respond to mistreatment with kindness, when we extend generosity to everyone who needs it, we are reflecting the nature and the character of Christ. And it all starts with forgiveness. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your teaching about retaliation and forgiveness. We ask your forgiveness for all the times that we have sought to retaliate, even thought about how nice it would be to, to retaliate instead of following your teachings. Form us more and more into your disciples, your radical disciples who don't look anything like the world looks, but instead we look like you, the one who we follow, the one who leads us, the one whom we love and adore. In your name we pray. Amen.